this week on the Backtable Podcast. There's some complex aneurysms. Sometimes they're really wide neck and like you don't want to get a lot of coils close to the parent vessel because that increases the risk of clot getting in there. So we want to, you know, a lot of times we'll just temporize, like you said, we'll coil it really well. The rupture site, we feel it's secured. And then before they discharge, usually we'll put in a flow diverter after everything's cooled off, they're out of the vasospasm window, and then we'll, we'll bring them back before they go home and get them queued up. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Backtable, your source for all things endovascular and more. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on any platform like Spotify or even our website, backtable.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn, and keep up with the latest updates and give us feedback through comments. First, a quick word from our sponsors. For those physicians treating wide-necked bifurcation brain aneurysms, the web intrasacular device has been proven and widely utilized solution for many years. Recently, Webcast and Webcast 2 were published confirming safety and efficacy at five-year follow-ups. Over the five years of the study, the web device demonstrated long-term stability and durability, as well as an adequate aneurysm occlusion rate of 77.9% and 0% web-related mortality or morbidity. For more information on the web device and the recent clinical data, reach out to your Microvention sales representative. A decade ago, Rapid AI harnessed AI to revolutionize stroke care. Now they are bringing that same innovation to aneurysm and pulmonary embolism. This AI-powered, clinically-driven workflow platform enables care teams to accelerate triage and treatment decisions and improve operational efficiency to achieve better patient outcomes. Rapid AI, where AI meets patient care. Now, back to the show. I'm Sabine as your host today, and we have Dr. Aaron Bress, a neuro-IR from Salt Lake City, Utah. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Sabine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. You know, we're definitely looking forward to expand our neuro interventions on Backtable. And one thing, you know, we've talked a lot about ischemic stroke and things like that in the past, but looking forward to talking about cerebral aneurysms and hemorrhagic stroke. It's a heavy topic, but we'll go over it today. All right, let's do it. I'm ready to jump in. Let's do it. Let's do it. Before we get into that, though, let's talk about you, your practice, your journey into neuro-IR. Yeah. So, you know, I was born in Orlando, Florida, kind of a humble lower middle class. My dad was a mailman. My mom, she kind of worked a nine to five, like for AT&T initially, and then went into um, kind of like the banking industry. So I worked hard, went to college at Emory University, med school in Kansas City. Got my DO degree. That was pretty cool. And then, you know, I did my radiology residency at University of Kentucky, which was awesome because that was resident driven. So like the residents did everything. You know, we took the call, we did night call, we were on our by ourselves. So I came out of that training like, man, I can be an attending day one. You know what I mean? Totally. It's so funny how different residencies can be different, right? But resident driven really makes you prepared. It does. Totally. And then I guess it was the the feeling of like sitting in a chair every day, all the time. I was like, man, I miss the clinical stuff. Yeah. And I gravitated towards neuro. It was before stroke was even like a thing. It was like the Mercy device was out. And I was like, man, this was kind of cool. And so I just went for it, man. I just went head first. So I did my fellowship training at 
the University of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And that was a that was an awesome training because I had both the neurosurgical attendings and the neuroradiology attendings. And so I had the best of both worlds. So I had the spine interventions as well as the endovascular, as well as the clinical from the neurosurgery and stuff. And so it just it was just an awesome experience. When you made that decision, you wanted to be more hands-on and, and clinical. What made you decide neuro over body, you know, when you had that choice coming out of residency? I think at the University of Kentucky at the time, like they weren't doing much vascular. It was a lot of um, more CT driven, more kind of drains and biopsies. And I was like, man, I don't, I, I like it, but it's not like something I want to do forever. Did you get good neuro exposure in Kentucky then? We did. We had one neuroradiologist and one neurosurgeon, and they both were very welcoming. And maybe that was it too. You know, they, they really taught well and it was awesome. Yeah, totally. And now your practice now, you cover multiple hospitals in Salt Lake, correct? We do, yeah. Yep. Is your practice all neuro-IR? Are you mixed with interventional neurology or is it a radiology practice? How is it broken down? Yeah, so it's three neuroradiologists. It's one IR and IR. He had training in both. Okay. And then it's one endovascular surgeon. So it's it's a good mix. Yeah, that's a good mix. And then are you with other diagnostic radiologists then? Or th- those four are your, is your group that you cover? So that's, that's like the NIR piece. But like my job is also like, so I have a whole clinical practice in NIR. Like we have like four nurse practitioners. We have a whole clinical outpatient thing going on. And in fact, w- one thing that's really interesting about our practice is that during COVID, we have now primarily virtual clinic visits. Sure. Because, you know, like in an IR space, most of our clinical decisions are based on imaging. Yeah. And so we don't have to have patients come in and come out. Like if they want to come to our clinic, they do. But that's a rare exception. So the vast majority of our clinics are very similar to this. It's like a video or like a phone call or whatever. Most of it's kind of like on an app. And that's our interaction. And it works awesome. Yeah, that's probably increased your efficiency like crazy then. It saves so much time. Patients love it. And it's I think other people should incorporate it if they haven't yet. I know, I know. Our practice, we've incorporated a little bit of telehealth, but we we still have long strides to go that we could do something like you're doing in your practice. Let's talk about cerebral aneurysms. That's our topic today. I think most of our listeners, if not all, probably know what an aneurysm is in the brain. But what I wanted to do was kind of divide this talk into ruptured and unruptured aneurysms. Sure. And we'll, we'll start off with ruptured. What percent of people who have a rupture, a ruptured aneurysm actually make it to the hospital to get treated? So about two thirds do. So, you know, when we're in the field, they say about a third or 30 percent ish doesn't even make it to the hospital. And so that we get about two thirds into the hospital. And then out of that pie, about a third is completely normal, no problems. Mm-hmm. And then the, the rest will have some sort of neurologic deficit. Got it. Guys, it's kind of like a rule of thirds almost. Thirds, yeah. That's what I, I try to keep it simple. Yeah, I like that too. That's, that's my style too. You know, hemorrhagic stroke, we know the diagnosis is usually made after they get scanned, CT, CTA. Do you use any scoring scales in your practice when you see these patients? We don't. I mean, I know that the critical care doctors do. They grade like how big the subarachnoid hemorrhage is and it kind of guides them should they get an EVD or not. But um, us as interventionalists, not too much. 
Speaking of EVD, though, like how, you know, I know sometimes in our practice, we have a little bit of a rate limiting step when the patient needs an EVD prior to treatment. Do you do anyone with intraventricular hemorrhage or do you have like a particular degree of hydrocephalus that you're like, okay, I'm going to do an EVD now versus wait till after treatment or, or how does that work for you? The vast majority is clinical. We have great neurocritical care doctors that get to the patient before we do. And so they really evaluate and they kind of pull the trigger on that. You know, sometimes if the patient comes up to us and they ha- don't have an EVD, they're looking a little lethargic. It's like, whoa, let's let's talk to neurosurgery about this before we start. But if they're if they look neurologically intact, we'll we'll go ahead with the procedure. How acutely do you have to treat it? I mean, if, if a rupture comes in at 1 a.m., do you call in the team and treat it at 1 a.m. or can you wait for a little bit? Yeah, so we generally wait. I mean, it would be an extenuating circumstance. You always have that one case that you have to go in right now and do it. But for a general rule of thumb, like we'll wait till the morning and get them on, usually first case, and it's fine. I mean, I think there's even literature out there that they've done population studies and things and shown that, you know, you can wait. You don't have to like rush in. Exactly. Yeah, I was surprised by that because kind of my you know, I, I trained in body and when I just, I thought, you know, rough strands, you got to be right there, right then. But it's kind of nice. You can wait till the next morning. So frequently, since my group is combined neuro and body, you know, I'll, I'll get a call overnight about a ruptured aneurysm and work it up and set it up for my neuro partners. So that, that was kind of a surprise to me that probably not many of our listeners know unless they're treating these. What other information, you know, you get a call, patient has subarachnoid hemorrhage, a confirmed aneurysm on CTA. What other information pieces that you're looking for when you're getting that call from ER, ICU? Yeah, you know, the big thing is, let's start basic. After they get the CTA, you know, we'd love to have a CTA because it lets us know, like, localizes, one, is there an aneurysm? Is there anything to treat? And then where it is. So we don't have to do a four vessel angiogram, you know. So that's why I think getting a, a CTA before they come upstairs is, is a great thing. Another thing that, that we care about is parenchymal hemorrhage. You know, if there's a lot of mass effect or things like that, we, we definitely want to talk to neurosurgery. Thankfully, we have a neurosurgeon in the team anyways, and we have an awesome neurosurgery group in, in the hospital. But yeah, definitely in that situation, we definitely want to get them on board, kind of get their opinion, you know, kind of get things going in that direction. For the multiple hospitals that you cover, do you cover aneurysm treatment, hemorrhagic stroke at each one, or is it more of like a spoken hub model where they'll come to a main center of yours? Yeah, so basically all the hospitals that are in our system for hemorrhagic come to our place. We're like the main center in Salt Lake City. Not the academic one, but yeah, it's a huge center. And man, it's, I put it out there with the top 10 places in the country. We are, we're a great place. That's awesome. I, I'm sure it's super busy. It's busy and it's fun. And yeah, it's great. Do you, speaking of, since you have that busy and that volume, do you use any software? Like you know, we use in my practice where we can, you know, view images at home really easily, talk to each other. Do you use stuff like that in your practice yet? There's there's Viz, there's Rapid. Rapid. That's the one we use. Yeah. It's nice, right? It's just nice having those. It's great. It's it's easy, especially like when I like want to talk to my partners and be like, okay, like here, check this out. Okay. So that's kind of a brief touch on ruptured aneurysms. Before we talk about treatment of these, why don't we go kind of the other side and unruptured aneurysms? Now, 
do you use any scoring scale to figure out, you know, you see a patient, some some age and, and, and size? Is there anything that goes to your mind, whether it's subjectively or objectively, to talk to the patient about treatment? Yeah, so this is kind of, this is like the magic. If someone had the XYZ of what and how to pull the trigger on when to treat endovascularly, I think every place has a little nuance to it. Our place is kind of, we've kind of settled like, you know, if it's four millimeters or greater, we'll treat it. But, you know, some patients, when they hear they have a brain aneurysm, whether it's two millimeters or three millimeters, depending on location and things like that, the patient just can't live with it. You know what I mean? Some some yeah. can't. Some are like, oh, I, whatever, just do your yearly follow-up or whatever, and it's fine. But some patients, they mentally need to get it treated. And I think there's a lot of technology out there now that with flow diversion and stuff that if it's in the right spot, we can do it relatively safely as long as we talk to the patient about the risks. You know, you got to let the patient know that this is basically kind of a brain surgery, you know, so there are real risks to this. This isn't a little biopsy or something. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that a treatment of an unruptured aneurysm, elective treatment in a young patient, I have to say that's probably the most nerve-wracking procedure in all of endovascular therapy. And you know, I, I am fortunate enough to be exposed to a lot of endo techniques we cover in my hospital, vascular, neuro, this and that. But the most scariest thing that you can treat is a 40-year-old with a six millimeter PCOM aneurysm. Like, I don't know, that that was, that was so nerve-wracking. When did you feel comfortable doing that? How long does it take? What are some tips for people who are going through training right now? Yeah. So I think that's where the neurosurgeons really have the, like the mindset advantage, you know, like they come in and they're used to that. They're, they're in the OR, they have complications all the time, M&M. Radiologists by, by nature, anything complication, like we're like freaking out. True. True. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a learning curve. You're absolutely right. For, for like me, it took a, it took a few years to kind of just kind of accept that you're going to have complications. It's part of the business. We don't like it. I hate it. It, you know, it's the worst part of the business, but it happens. And you have to get into the mindset that, look, we're doing the best we can for these patients. We're trying all we can. Most of our cases elective like this are double scrubbed. We do them with two people. And, you know, things happen. And we try to talk to patients beforehand that these things can happen. Although unlikely, you know, it's unlikely. But, you know, that's where the clinical aspect is for us. That's why we have clinic. That's why we talk to our patients. That's why we develop rapport and relationships. And that's where that that kind of thing comes really into play. Totally. I mean, what is like, what is your conversation with these patients? Say you have this, you know, pretty young patient and, and you're going to do an elective repair uh, treatment. What is your general? What do you tell them um, to consent them or, or, or whatnot for the procedure? Yeah. So I basically tell them the truth. You know, that's the best way to go. And for us, I kind of use like our data. You know, we probably have about a 2%, maybe a little less of intraprocedural complication where it would rupture or significant stroke. So I let the patient know that, that that's a possibility. And, you know, a lot of times they ask like, well, what's stroke? You know, so you tell them like, well, it, it could be a little numbness and tingling that goes away. People can become blind or die from strokes, but the likelihood of like a severe disabling stroke is pretty unlikely. So the odds are in their favor. 
but you you know nothing's ever zero totally and no and like you said it's it's all about the rapport you develop with the patient their family but like i said i think it tops the list as far as the the most nerve-wracking procedure in all of endovascular therapy is doing an elective aneurysm no you you nailed it you nailed it because um our young partner, he just joined the practice. He's, he went into IR. He practiced body IR for a couple of years. And then he went back to do his neuro IR training. And he said, man, this is a totally different level. You know, the stress level, the mental, the mindset, the techniques. Exactly. The patience level, like putting in a, and I, I, I'm, I'm for, I get to do it because I get to do it with my partners as an assist, but Putting in that coil, you know, if you're coiling the aneurysm, it's the slow, just patience. Like, whereas, you know, in the other parts of the body, we're just like, more or less, we're just shoving in a wire and putting it back. Like, there's a lot more room for mistakes, you can say, but the brain is, it does not give you much room, no room, you know. So you have a neurosurgeon that you guys work with. How do you determine whether, and now this is for ruptured or unruptured aneurysms, how do you do that decision tree between a surgical treatment versus endo? Yeah, you know, a lot of it's, we've kind of, we have a good relationship with surgery. So generally, like if we can feel we can treat it, we go ahead and do it. And we're not cowboys, we really aren't. I think that's a superpower of our program is that we have an awesome relationship with the neurosurgeons. Our endovascular neurosurgeon, Dr. Yoon, we love him. We think he's super talented and we show him cases. He shows us cases. We're super collaborative. I think that mindset, that abundance mindset of just like. Yeah. Collaboration. Collaborate. Exactly. And that really helps. I think at the end of the day, we're trying to serve patients and they get, you know, and we get a, a awesome outcomes most of the time. That's great. So in now, I mean, with the variety of devices that are out, I mean, how much would you say how many aneurysms are going for open repair, clipping versus endovascular repair compared to, you know, five years ago, maybe? We don't have the numbers exactly. I would probably lean 80-20, the Pareto rule. That's always a good thing. So I think 80% are probably endovascular and 20% are clip. Probably if you look at the, at least our thing for our data for outpatient elective or ruptured, you know, it's probably in that ballpark. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I saw a big change over the last five, uh, seven years as far as the clipping and then just with all the devices, flow diverters and, and everything really has pushed things towards the endo route, which is which is great to, to be able. But definitely there are some aneurysms that are better served with clipping and, and from a skilled neurosurgeon. We'll briefly talk about, we, we won't go into the details. This will be for another talk for sure. But there's different devices and techniques that we can use now for treatment. Of course, there's coiling. Coiling technology has gone pretty far. What makes neuro coils better than body coils? Because they're like double, triple the price. They are, you know, the technology in them, the way they can form inside the aneurysm now, the way they can sit inside the aneurysm, the softness, and then just, you know, some body coils, they stretch. I mean, it's very rare to have a neuro coil stretch on you. It it takes, it's an act of God to do that. (laughs) Have I done it? I've done it. I've done, I feel like I've done almost every complication and then I do something else. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's always learning. Exactly. But I'd say that's a big thing. The softness, the way it conforms and 
it doesn't really stretch like some body coils can. Sure, sure. And then, you know, what what exactly is balloon-assisted coiling or stent-assisted coiling? Yeah, so balloon-assisted coilings where we use a really, like a super compliant balloon, um, those kind of generally lean. We do those more in the ruptured cases if we don't want to put a stent. And so you basically... It's hard to, to do it on, on just voice only. It's kind of a show is better, but we inflate the little microcatheter balloon right at the neck while we jail another microcatheter in the sac of the aneurysm. You know, so basically it's kind of like a, a temporary stent. It acts as a scaffold while we put in the coils. And then, you know, you can only keep it up. You don't want to go over 10 minutes, okay? So generally, between some people do every coil. Some people try to get one or two, maybe three at most coils and then bring it down. So you're constantly playing this game of up and down with the balloon. You know, speaking of like keeping the balloon up and, and also maybe in a stent-assisted coiling, when would it be safe? This is a technical question, but do you start heparinizing the patient at any point, like when the dome of the aneurysm is protected at all, or are you avoid heparinizing a patient in the setting of a ruptured aneurysm? Yeah, so we're, we are, I think, a little more aggressive than definitely in my training. We're leaning, at least in my practice, I don't know about everybody else in our group, but I'm leaning, I'm getting more comfortable with doing stent-assisted coiling during a ruptured. Okay. I get a better, I get a much better pack. And, you know, when you have, when you're kind of like playing that game of up and down and, and the microcatheter can seesaw with inside the aneurysm sometimes. Sure. It's a little cumbersome. So if you can get good, you get comfortable with, with anticoagulating these patients, they actually have really good outcomes. In a stent-assisted coiling, in a ruptured, I guess a lot of times I see my partners debating, like a lot of times they'll avoid it because, yeah, when do you do antiplatelets? When do you do all this? What's your antiplatelet slash anticoagulation regimen then in a rupture? Yeah, in a rupture, it's kind of like we wait till we're like everything's all queued up. And then we do give agristat. We have a protocol for giving agristat. We'll do the case. Generally, we'll also give some heparin too. And then at the end of the case, we'll load the patient with aspirin and Plavix and send them upstairs with a, a maintenance rate agristat drip for about six hours and then turn that off. That's a way so we know for sure that the, the Plavix has kind of hit its peak. Got it. Got it. When do you start the agristat then? Just like literally we're about to deploy the stent. Yeah. Then, then it's like, turn it on. Because you know, then you're going to go. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's, these like these little tiny tidbits and, and tips are, are the things that you kind of learn. It, it, it's ever changing too. There's there's different medicines you can give and, and things like that. So I, I'm always learning these and, and learning what other people are doing. Are you using other specialty devices? I mean, flow diversion is just an amazing technology. It's a talk in itself. Uh, briefly, what is a flow diverter? Yeah, so Pipeline was the first flow diverter. Now Stryker has theirs out and everybody's coming out with another flow diverter. Bolt's got one coming and, you know, everybody wants to get in the space. It's basically, if you think of a screen door, you know, like a screen door. So it has much more like woven metal pieces. So more flow stays within the parent vessel and less into the actual sac of the aneurysm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I mean, it's, I I love the technology because I mean, at a branch point, it will keep the branch open, but it will embolize the aneurysm. So it's a, it's a technology that's slowly kind of coming. People in the peripheral space and in the body space are kind of learning it, but it's still, there's still a lot, you know, that, that I think the applications of a flow diverter out in peripheral might be very, very, very cool. What about other specialty devices? You know, there's these Webs or pulsar stent and Kovanichi, all this, all these, or all these different names. Are you using all these too? Yeah. So we have used web before, at least in my practice. I have. I think it's awesome. It's it's endosacular, so it's basically trying to put a device in there without you know having to put multiple coils. And I think the technology is good. It's got its place. It's it's a niche kind of thing right now. But it's it's the first iteration, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think the idea is there, and I think it's going to stay, and I think the the space is going to really refine the technology to where it's easier to deploy, it fits better, recanalizations or retreatments are are less, and so I think it's really an interesting device. Nice. And what about other things like? I think we we got the pulsar stent approved one you know one time. I think my partners used it once. And there's a lot of these little specialty niche devices for different therapies. Are is that something that you guys all have access to and and may or may not use it? The thing is, is that some of these niche things it it sounds good, but they're clunky to to use. You know what I mean? And there's this big learning curve. And when like we said, when you're in the in the brain and there's a learning curve. Most operators don't want to use it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Something like the web, they're willing to because you can see that's a disruptive, potentially disruptive technology. So we want to get our hands on it. But if it's something kind of like weird where a Y stent would work and it's just like, why? You know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. Any other devices we didn't really touch on? I mean, I really think between stent assisting, coiling, full diverging and, and just coils, I mean, you're, you're pretty much able to treat most of the aneurysms now via an endo approach. The awesome thing about neuro, at least neurointerventional, neuroendovascular, is that it's one of the few spaces in medicine where it's truly an art on how you treat it. So we could spend hours talking, picking my brain or whatever, how I do it, how my partners do it. And then you go to Denver or New York City or San Francisco and they do things different. And that's what makes this space so freaking awesome because we we have the ability. It's not like cardiology where it's A, B, C, and D. And that's what make this, makes this fun. You know what I mean? Totally. I've gone to like Neuro Embo Club out here in LA and they'll just start talking. I mean, there's very smart people. <laughs> and it's, I mean, there's just so many ways and, and so many strategic, very cerebral ways to treat. To treat, yeah. And that's that's what makes it fun, man. That's what makes this space really, really, you go, go to work and you have an, a challenging case and you do well. And it, it's just a really great benefit for the patient. You feel like you accomplished something for them and it's awesome. I agree. I agree. And I think it applies to endo in general where there's, there's so many ways to treat stuff. I think that's what makes our job really, really fun that we love doing. You know, whether I revask a leg, the way how I can do this or that. It's nice than just a mundane, okay, this is how I do a knee replacement every day. You know, I, I use a grit. You know, there, this is really kind of, there's so much space and variety that makes makes endovascular treatment so much fun. What about follow-up? 
Uh, are you, what's your general follow-up regimen for these patients? Is it CTA, MRA, and what interval? So yeah, that's a, that's another little art in itself. I think everybody has their own kind of thing. Generally, I do, I like to do it, if, especially if I put a stent, a six-month angiogram, I get a much better look at the lumen of the stent, you know, if there's any subtle recanalization or anything like that. If everything looks awesome at six months, everything's healed, I'll, I'll go to MRA. That's kind of my thing. I know for flow diversion, some people just go straight to the CTA, which is fine. I mean, if you're comfortable with that, I just, you know, I really like to get a good look of how the flow dynamics are. And I think, you know, doing a six month angiogram, like if it looks awesome, then you can just throw them to MR and you don't have to mess with contrast and all that stuff. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I would say my guys do a six month follow-up cerebral angio. You know, frequently they use this word compaction. What does compaction mean? Yeah. So that's, that's like, we hate that because that's when the coils, you know, the endosacular device kind of pushes into the dome. So now your neck is much bigger. So it's basically a recurrence, you know, and it kind of depends on how much compaction there is. If there's just like a millimeter of it, it's like, okay, whatever, we'll just watch it. But if it's several millimeters or it's got a funny filling, you know, filling along the sidewall, the aneurysm or something, then, you know, we got to bring them back and, and treat it. How often are you combining techniques now? Like I'll see my guys do sometimes it, say it's a tough rupture or something, they'll, they'll coil the dome of the aneurysm and bring them back in later and then maybe put a flow diverter in or some kind of combination of that. Are you doing that often or, you know, doing it at all? We do it. You know, the more comfortable I get with doing the stent-assisted coiling or sometimes we even do flow diversion with coiling, you know, but it does happen. There's some complex aneurysm, sometimes a really wide neck. And like, you don't want to get a lot of coils close to the parent vessel because that increases the risk of clot getting in there. So we want to, you know, a lot of times we'll just temporize, like you said, we'll coil it really well. The rupture site, we feel it's secured. And then before they discharge, usually we'll put in a flow diverter after everything's cooled off, they're out of the vasospasm window. And then we'll we'll bring them back before they go home and get them queued up. It's unusual, you know. Like that, those cases are kind of like the, you know, that's not the norm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, as far as um, training, different pathways. What what are different pathways to get to where you are, where you can treat aneurysms? We, we mentioned obviously radiology and and neuro IR. What are some other pathways that people might find themselves doing endovascular treatment? What is an endovascular neurosurgeon, et cetera? Yeah, so endovascular neurosurgeon, they go through the full neurosurgery training, and they generally have a, an interest in vascular neurosurgery. They just love it. And, you know, it adds a tool to their kind of armamentarium, you know what I mean? And so they most of the time, they do their seven years of training. It's generally seven. And then another year, sometimes two of endovascular training, and they're ready to go. So it could take them anywhere from seven to nine years sometimes. Wow. Yeah. So it's, I mean, for a radiologist, like just to throw it out there, you know, you go through the full residency for radiology, which is five. You go through a diagnostic neuroradiology program for a year, six, and then one or two more years for the endovascular training. So that's seven to eight. And then, you know, the neurology route, um, they, they generally do 
you know, they're, I think it's four years for neuro, neurology. And then they go through like either neurocritical care or neurovascular or maybe a stroke fellowship. And then they go into the neuroendovascular training. So you got to bank on at least seven years to become a neurointerventionalist. And what are your thoughts about in the IR and the radiology space doing dual training, body IR and neuro IR? I think it's fine. I mean, as long as you're getting enough cases and you want to just do both, I think that's fine. I think there's definitely a demand for it as we have a guy that does that. And actually, our more senior partners, they do both body and NIR as well. I think it's becoming less common because there's so much clinical and so much stuff to to know in in both. So you kind of gravitate towards one or the other. But if you like both, do both. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's cool. I mean, I do. I see a couple, you know, the uh, people who are dual trained and I think it's it's a really cool kind of path if, if that's what's for them. Sometimes I, I wish I did dual training in the past, you know, because I get so much exposure to neuro IR and I get to treat ischemic stroke, but the hemorrhagic, I, I uh, you know, other than vasospasm and diagnostic, I, I am not treating those elective aneurysms. <laughs> And, you know, for our listeners, for, you know, young trainees, any other kind of tips or or words of advice? Yeah. So for our radiology colleagues, first, you got to like neuro. You know, if you like treating prostates or livers or kidney tumors and stuff, you know, go in the body. But if you love neuro and you got to love patients, you have to love that in the sense like direct patient care because you're more like a traditional physician in this sense. To thrive in the space, you have to have a clinic. You have to be clinically present on the rounds. You have to go to the meetings. So technically, I'm not. A, I'm definitely not a surgeon, but you have to have that surgeon mentality. Sure. You can't hide from your complications. So you have to have that kind of mindset, that kind of drive. You can't have that mindset of I did the procedure. Now it's your issue. You have to take some ownership and and some participation. And enjoy that. Like if you enjoy that part of medicine, it's an awesome field. I mean, it's constantly innovating and it's going to be, we're always breaking ground, I feel like, every couple of years. Yeah. Well, Aaron, that's really good. I mean, look, it's a big topic. I kind of wanted to get into the basics and just touch on this. This is like chapter one of many uh, as far as cerebral aneurysms. But thanks. Thanks so much. I really, you know, enjoyed learning from your perspective. And it sounds like your practice is booming. And you guys are doing really cool stuff. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for educating our listeners. And uh, yeah, let's talk about more aneurysms in the future. Thanks for having me. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Louis Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Mood. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 